On this episode of the AST Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest news, including ASORN's recommended practice regarding the use of multi-dose ophthalmic medications, key findings in a recent Avanza study on hospital ASC investment, news about CMS increasing dental surgery reimbursement for hospital outpatient surgery departments, and in our focus segment, discuss interoperability in the Ambulatory Surgery Center with Lindsay Hanrahan, SIS Vice President of Product Management. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, SIS. SIS's mission is to deliver solutions and services that help surgery providers, regardless of care setting, improve their organization so they can deliver the highest level of care to their patients. For more information, go to sisfirst.com. Welcome to episode 165 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for September 5th, 2022. Recording from our studio in Spencerport, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. The ASC regulatory environment is extremely dynamic and the material provided in this episode is based on information available as of the date of the recording. Joining me is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, he is recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. Mr. Gailey is the author of over 10 books on the ASC industry and a frequent industry speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. So I feel like we've spent the entire uh, last week in the studio here. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we, we just, did. <laughs> we, and we did. And we just finished the ASC Administrators Boot Camp. This would be mm-hmm. our seventh boot camp and fourth ASC Administrators Boot Camp. Uh, and as always, it, it's uh, it's very exciting and very interactive experience. We really enjoyed, you know, uh, we had a lot more interaction with our staff this time than we've had in the past. Mm-hmm. We've had more mm-hmm. people being able to join us now with, uh, yeah. uh, we, we'd like to announce, uh, we do have a new employee, Donna Macchio, former administrator of a surgery center in uh, Westchester, New York. And she joined us about two weeks ago. And uh, she uh, joined us a couple times during the, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the boot camp there to give her insight and things. And yeah, we really had a lot of fun. And uh, with this group, we now have a total of 175 graduates of our boot camps over the past two years. That's pretty amazing when you think mm-hmm. about it. And as I said, that was the seventh um, boot camp that we've done. And we already announced the eighth boot camp, which will be uh, the ASC Director of Nursing Boot Camp for Nursing Leaders in Ambulatory Surgery Setting. Like all of our industry-leading boot camps, the Director of Nursing Boot Camp includes reading materials, virtual mentoring consultations, and an intensive four-day virtual conference that's going to be presented October 25th through the 28th, 2022. And Sue, you know, one thing that we always have to emphasize to people, since it is virtual, of course, which means you don't have to travel to go to the conference, Mm -hmm. but people still ask, do I have to be there the whole time? And while it's best if everybody is there the whole time, we do record the boot camp. And as a result of that, um, people can go back and listen to the boot camp over and over again. If they missed anything because somebody came into their office and bother them, which of course is the nature of our business, um, mm-hmm. they can uh, pick it up later. So uh, that's a very important thing to note that you never miss anything when you're taking one of our boot camps. So for more information about the Director of Nursing Boot Camp in October uh, 25th through the 28th, go to our website at ASCPodcast.com. And in just about a week, our September 2022 ASC Finance Accounting and Reimbursement Seminar will be, um, it's a partnership with Christina Benton. This is the ASC industry's only dedicated finance, accounting, and reimbursement seminar. And this year, 2022, will be its third year. We'll be discussing various aspects of finance, accounting, and reimbursement in the ASC setting. It's ideal for anyone who's interested in understanding basic finance principles, as well as those that know finance but want to learn how it differs in the ASC setting. The program is also designed to assist those that are seeking CASC certification to understand the finance section of the the exam. And in about two hours, we're recording on uh, 
on Labor Day here. In about two hours, I uh, hop on an airplane and head for California for the California for the California Ambulatory Surgery Association's 2022 annual conference at the Hyatt Regency Indian Wells Resort and Spa. If you haven't signed up already, make sure you do. I'm going to be presenting a four-hour finance boot camp on Wednesday. And, Sue, I'll be recording as many interviews as I can Mm -hmm. while I'm there. You're not going to be joining me. You're going to have enough to keep you busy here, I'm sure. Uh, but I'm I'm very much looking forward to it, even though it's going to be in a very hot part of California. Yes. So I'm not sure I'm really looking forward to that, but I'll stay indoors the whole time. But Yeah, the uh, conference is always wonderful yeah, it's a, there. So absolutely. It's just, though you and I have not actually never gone to this resort. We've been to mm-hmm. uh, two of the other locations that the, the um, that CASA goes to, but this yeah. is the first time out in Palm Desert. So Yeah, just in general, the California conferences tend to be... Really good. They have a lot of good information. Right. And we have a lot of news this week. And we'll start with the American Society of Ophthalmic Registered Nurses, better known as ASORN. They uh, have a recommended practice regarding the use of multi-dose medications. And actually, it's from January of this year, but um, it was noted that our listeners might want to be made aware of it. So specifically, this document, which I'll give you a link to, the purpose was to establish guidelines for the use of multi-dose ophthalmic medications. And this, as we well know, is an ongoing issue with many surveyors and states and with the accreditation organizations. And the document is meant to give some significant guidance to ambulatory surgery centers. I don't think, Sue, any of this information is unknown. I think everybody kind of follows this. Mm -hmm. uh, But I'm not sure that it's always been in writing as, as specifically as it is here. So let's just go through some of the things that are in there. And as I said, I'm going to provide a link to it. So eye drop medications uh, labeled as multi-dose may be used for more than one patient if and only if a septic technique and standard precautions are followed. Any medication labeled as single use must be discarded immediately after use on a single patient. And this is obvious, but I'll tell you, uh, we've had situations or I've been on surveys where, you know, there's been an immediate jeopardy called because the surveyor noted that mm-hmm. in ophthalmo- ophthalmology that uh, somebody was trying to use a, a single dose on, a mul- on a multiple patients. And then they outlined the procedures for using uh, multi-dose uh, ophthalmic drops. And it reiterated the three checks for medication re- confirmation, which is when reaching for the container, after obtaining and comparing the container with the physician's orders, and when replacing the medication in its storage location or before administration to the patient. And of course, the seven rights of medication administration, which are um, the right patient, the right medication, the right dose, the right time, the right route, the right reason the right documentation, and the right response. And, of course, uh, you know, Sue, those are things that you as nurses know, Mm -hmm. you know, right off the bat, but it's something that many administrators probably are not familiar with. I Mm -hmm. I was not uh, aware of that, so it's uh, a good uh, thing to remember. And it's always good to repeat anyways because they do keep adding to these. Yes. There was once, you know, the, the five rights. And, of course, you always wash your hands before administration of medications. If you're instilling more than one drop, utilize appropriate technique to prevent contamination, such as um, not touching the medication bottle after patient contact unless you perform hand hygiene before that. Um, before administering ophthalmic drops, remove the top of the bottle and place the cap capside down, not bottom down, on a clean surface. Use an applicator or have the patient gently retract their lower lid with a clean finger and still a drop into the cul-de-sac that's created. Um, never touch the tip of the bottle to the patient. Um, lid, lashes, or the surface of the eye, of course. If administering ophthalmic ointment, use an applicator or have the patient gently retract the lower lid with a clean finger. Hold the applicator end of the tube close to the eye and squeeze out a ribbon of ointment into the inferior cul-de-sac. Um, if administering ophthalmic drops and ointment at the same time, the ophthalmic ointment should be administered last, just so it doesn't kind of block the absorption. Um, Replace the top of the bottle or tube using aseptic technique. All individuals need to have competencies demonstrating their ability to carry out the steps as outlined above. And we're putting a link to the full document there. So again, I think uh, the surveyors in particular are going to be observing uh, the technique during a survey. And of course, they're going to want to see the competencies in the employee files. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense because even though all this is common sense, it's just like when you're first learning how to act around a sterile field, you know, it, it can take a little bit of practice to kind of do it all smoothly. Right. 
And then there was an interesting news release from Avanza Healthcare Strategies and their president, Joan Dentler. Uh, the key findings from a recent survey, or, uh, survey of hospitals related to their investments in ASCs included that hospital s- systems are expanding their ASC portfolios, and many are converting hospital outpatient departments to ASCs, which seems surprising to me, Sue, because mm-hmm. the reimbursement in ASC is lower than the hospital outpatient departments. But then again, uh, how pa- out, uh, hospital outpatient departments that were um, created um, off-site uh, after about 2017, I think, somewhere around there, 2016, were no longer reimbursed at the higher HOPD rate. So mm. perhaps they're just finding that uh, the ability to have outside investment in the ASCs is the advantage of moving that over. Mm-hmm. Then it also found that more than 80% of hospital systems surveyed have one or more of their ASCs as joint ventures with physicians, and more than half are allowing employed physicians to invest in their ASCs. And then most importantly, or most interestingly to me, was that third-party management and partnerships continued to decline. And the Avanza, the Avanza founder and president, Joan Dentler, noted the following. It's, it comes as no surprise to see our new survey indicate that hospital systems are pursuing a variety of ASC initiatives, often in partnership with physicians, that will allow them to broaden their surgery center and outpatient portfolios. As surgical care continues its migration out of the inpatient setting, hospital systems are recognizing the need for at least one ASC and increasingly multiple centers in their portfolios. Dentler also points out points to the maturity of the ASC industry, and she noted that in the early days of ASCs, management services were often a necessity to running a viable surgery center. But, <laughs> but thanks to the proliferation of support services and technologies for the industry and growth of those professionals with ASC experience, the need to give up valuable equity and enter expensive management agreements is no longer a requisite for ASC success. And I've provided links to the report and to Avanza on our show notes. So, Sue, as they're talking about this, you know, of course, we have a bunch of hospitals. Uh, Ambitory Healthcare Strategies mm-hmm. has a bunch of hospitals they're working with with their ASC. So, and we're not a management company, so it's not a big surprise as they find that they can leverage less expensive systems or less expensive options such as uh, regulatory uh, consultants as opposed to using a management company who takes a very big cut out of the profits there. So uh, interesting study and definitely uh, provides us a a good indication of what's going on uh, with regard to ASCs and hospitals. And then CMS issued a proposed rule that would improve access to dental surgeries in hospitals. So, Sue, this is kind of good news and bad news. Like, the good news is that they're looking into reimbursing hospitals at a higher rate, uh, but our ASCs are not yet included. So, a proposed rule from CMS would increase the facility fee for dental surgeries performed in hospital outpatient operating rooms, thereby increasing access to dental rehabilitation surgery for patients who need extensive dental procedures performed in an operating room. And this has been an ongoing issue with dental surgery in hospitals and ASCs as these procedures generally have been reimbursed very low, like about $100 in the ASC setting. And the dental associations had asked CMS address the dental community's significant concerns regarding pediatric and adult patient access to dental rehabilitation surgery in the hospital outpatient ambulatory surgery center locations. The, the dental organizations noted that limitations in access have been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic, primarily affecting high-risk Medicaid and commercially insured patients who require an operating room setting when receiving extensive dental procedures due to their particular medical conditions. And what they propose is to change the ambulatory payment classification, the APC, from CPT code 41899, which is an unlisted procedure uh, for dental procedures. Uh, um, And it's the code that's frequently used by hospitals and ASCs to bill the facility fee in the operating room. And the code is currently assigned to APC 5161, which is a level one ENT procedure. And whose that reimbursement rate is approximately $200 in the ASC setting. And that rate in no way reflects the average cost of the dental services it's meant to cover. CMS is proposing the move to code to APC 5871, which is dental procedures, which would raise the Medicare facility payment rate associated with this procedure code from about $200 to almost $2,000. If this regulation is finalized, it would be effective January 2023, and this increased facility fee would apply to dental OR 
cases taking place in the hospital outpatient setting for Medicare patients when that CPT 41899 is billed. Many states, as we know, use Medicare billing codes uh, for Medicaid services and use the codes assigned billing rates to guide Medicaid reimbursement. Now, keep in mind that this is currently only in the hospital setting. The American Dental Association is trying to get this approved for the ASC setting also, which, of course, will result in a lower reimbursement rate, uh, but still higher than what they're getting right now, probably about half of what uh, half about uh, half of that two thousand dollars that we mentioned earlier, but it's still a significant increase. And in ongoing conversations with CMS and Congress, the dental groups will continue to pursue efforts to establish a new HICPICS code for use with the ambulatory surgery centers. And I uh, do want to make it clear, I, I got this information from the American Dental Association website, and I'll provide a link for that. I saw an article in OR Manager from August 19th about unprofessional physician behavior. Um, and they define unprofessional behavior as rudeness, um, refusal to practice handoffs or observe protocols, extreme delays in response, jousting, um, and failure to adhere to safety guidelines. And they found that only 5% of physicians account for 35% of patient complaints and 50% of claims dollars. A really important finding, I thought, is that those same physicians are more likely to have poor patient outcomes. So it's more, I know a lot of people joke about difficult positions or they have Mm -hmm. a hard time, but it's really more serious than that, you know, than just getting your feelings hurt or having a stressful day at work, which which is serious enough in itself. But um, it's something you really have to address, especially knowing that that it could be affecting patient care. Um, and interestingly, just 3% of physicians account for half of all coworker complaints. So there's really very few out there that are causing this problem. Vanderbilt Center for Patient and Professional Advocacy has developed a couple of programs to address these issues. The basic intervention is just having a peer rather than an authority figure have a casual conversation um, over a cup of coffee. They're calling it, you know, just a cup of coffee conversation. And the peer should just be trained to be empathetic and non-judgmental so the person they're speaking to doesn't feel attacked. And most, they found, improved their behavior after just this one conversation. When it didn't improve, they recommended a tiered approach consisting of a second, longer peer conversation followed by an intervention by an authority figure if that's needed. The next step would be moving into disciplinary action. Um, And it's important to have wellness resources available to staff also in case the behavior is being caused by stress or the physician is experiencing burnout. Um, and the success rate for these programs is around 85%. So it seems like such a simple thing, but sometimes just knowing how to address, you know, these issues, it can just make your workplace much more pleasant and, and really benefit your patients as well. And it's extremely important right now when we're trying to maintain our staff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we have staff that are upset at the way they're being treated by coworkers, such as physicians, uh, this is just going to make you know give them another reason to leave. So uh, obviously something we have to keep an eye on. I love that success rate. That sounds uh, very promising at eighty five percent. Let's hope that mm-hmm. um, we can uh, uh, see this uh, work in our own environment. And hopefully, as you said, Sue, this isn't very common, but it doesn't matter. You know, yeah. just losing one nurse because of one doctor mm-hmm. in your facility mm-hmm. uh, could be very expensive to your business. And then there was an article in U.S. News about pain management during knee replacement. The August 18th U.S. News and World Report has an article about a study reported in the Journal of Arthroplasty. The study, which was conducted by Dr. Park, an orthopedic surgeon, and his team at Houston Methodist Hospital examined the efficacy of morphine injected into the shin bone during knee replacement surgery for postoperative pain control. This was done in addition to the general anesthesia and the regional nerve blocks, um, which are normally used. The researchers had already successfully used intraosseous infusions of antibiotics into the shin bone to reduce the risk of post-op infection, so they found it adding morphine to the IO injections reduced postoperative pain by up to 40 to 49% for nine days. As a result, the patients were able to use fewer opioids in the two weeks post-op period. And I have to point out that the study only involved 48 patients, and it's not clear why a medication that's usually quick-acting but temporary was able to control pain for several days. But hopefully they'll be doing more studies um, to find out if this technique can become an effective tool for not only reducing opioid use, but, you know, just making people more comfortable after surgery. 
That's an interesting study and an interesting use of a drug in a different way mm-hmm. uh, than normally would be used, or an opioid yeah. in a different way. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, very interesting. So moving on to uh, some recent experiences, I did want to bring up a issue that was discussed during a um, uh, one of our weekly Saturday sessions for mm-hmm. our patron members. Um, and again, to remind everybody that uh, patron members of our program get invited weekly to our Saturday morning about 10 o'clock Eastern Standard Time online Zoom session with about two to three, sometimes four surveyors uh, on our team here and talk about things that are going on in their surgery center and ask questions. It's a great opportunity to interact with uh, the hosts of the podcast here as well as a lot of other experts in the industry. Mm -hmm. And we are talking this week about consents, making sure that you have all of the consents and how those consents are done. And again, Sue, as we talk about, this stuff is kind of obvious, I think, uh, but sometimes people, especially administrators, don't even know what's going on behind the scenes until a surveyor comes out. So let's just make some things clear. So generally, there are three consents that are required in a surgery setting. The first is the consent to treatment, and this is the facility consent that allows the ASC staff to treat the patient. For example, start IVs, you know, basically for the nursing staff to provide care. And then there's the procedure consent, which is signed by the patient and the surgeon, which allows the surgeon to do the actual procedure. And then there's the anesthesia consent, which is usually separate from the procedure consent. And it's there particularly when there is an outside anesthesiologist or a separate anesthesiologist providing like moderate uh, or more advanced anesthesia services. So one of the issues that's come up recently is sometimes we find these consents being signed in the operating room, which is mm-hmm. not appropriate at all, not, not appropriate ever. And then sometimes we also see them signed even before the patient has had the conversation with the physician mm-hmm. or with the anesthesiologist, which is not appropriate either. It must be signed after the patient has discussed the procedure with the doctor. And often that conversation actually occurs in the physician's office, which is all right. But again, you need to make sure that conversation occurs before that patient signs that document. And if a nurse is asking the patient to sign, then they're, they're signing as a witness. But make sure that it is clear that the nurse is get, not getting the consent. Mm-hmm. They're just asking them to sign that consent. Saying that, kind of attesting to the fact that they've had that conversation with the physician. That's right. And double-checking if they have any further questions. And if they do, then you have to get the physician involved again. And same thing with the anesthesiologist. I've seen situations where literally the receptionist gets the consent for the procedure sometimes and the anesthesia uh, signed at the front desk, which is totally inappropriate. Uh, So you always have to have uh, that consent signed after that conversation. And uh, as Sue pointed out, the importance of uh, making sure the nurse doesn't go outside in her scope of practice uh, and imply that she is getting the consent from the patient. Mm-hmm. So uh, things that I, I hope are kind of obvious, but you might want to double check in your own organization uh, to make sure that the sequence is done properly. So let's take a short break and we'll come back and we're going to talk about an interesting topic about interoperability in the ASC setting. When it comes to the financial outcomes of your ambulatory surgery center, it has never been more important to maximize revenue, tighten the time to bill and collect payment, and reduce denials from payers. Yet without a keen focus on your revenue cycle, it can be difficult to achieve the results your center needs to remain profitable. The revenue cycle experts at Surgical Information Systems can help. With revenue cycle services from SIS, you can improve the financial health and performance of your ASC. SIS Revenue Cycle Services takes care of all aspects of the revenue cycle, including compliant coding based on documentation, claim preparation and submission, claim management, accounts receivable management, billing follow-up, month-end reconciling and closing processes, standard and customized reporting, and patient portion due and or balance management. By doing the heavy lifting, SIS Revenue Cycle Services leaves you to do what you do best, provide affordable, high-quality care. In addition to managing your revenue cycle, the SIS-RCS team uses a five-step process to monitor, analyze, and make recommendations for improvement to your revenue cycle performance. More than 50 ASCs enjoy these results from SIS Revenue Cycle Services every month. Faster claim submission, 
shorter time to pay, improved AR follow-up, higher net collections, expert coding to meet exact payer requirements, and an overall more consistent revenue cycle. Visit sysfirst.com to learn how the revenue cycle experts at SIS can deliver improved financial health for your ASC. Again, that's sysfirst.com to learn more about SIS revenue cycle services. So, Sue, we are in an environment right now where, of course, there's a lot of staffing challenges, mm-hmm. a lot of turnover, staffing shortages. It has been very difficult. And this didn't just happen with the pandemic, of course. It, it just has been exacerbated by, the, by what's happened after the pandemic. And as a result of it, uh, we're looking for other solutions out there. And, of course, computers can help. Um, but we often don't even know what software solutions are available. Or uh, what I find interesting, as we talked about in this upcoming interview, is what solutions you might already have included in software that you've already purchased. And it, it's also important to uh, for us to remember that uh, we need ongoing training on the software we have. As we hire new employees, sometimes the previous employees hire them or other employees employees on your staff who might not be fully aware of all of the uh, the functionality that is built into these systems. So let's listen to this interview with Lindsay Hanrahan from SIS. She's the Vice President of Product Management, and she'll talk extensively uh, about the different interoperability uh, things we should be considering in the ASC setting. So Lindsay, uh, why don't we start by asking a question, what does interoperability mean in healthcare technology, and why should we in the ASC industry uh, care about that? Well, thanks so much, John, for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you today talking about this. Um, It is really an important thing for surgery centers and for any healthcare provider, really, but in surgery centers, it just seems as though some aspects of this technology have not been adopted as widely, and they do really represent a lot of opportunity for cost saving and also for maximizing staff time. So making sure that your most important resources are able to spend their time doing the things that truly matter the most for your center. So one of the most obvious ways that integration can help is just by preventing the redundant entry of data into a software application. So in many scenarios, as you as you know, the data already exists somewhere along the way. So it's collected at some other point during the patient journey, and the facilities are getting that data today from sources such as a phone call or a fax or you know some other human or more quote unquote traditional type of, of interaction. So if the data reliably exists somewhere, then integration can really help surgery centers by getting that data into your application without your precious staff time being spent manually typing it in. And so when you really consider the data that's done per patient, per case, you know, over the multiplied times, the number of cases that your center is doing, the time savings is very considerable. Um, And in addition, you're also removing the risk of typos or missed data elements along the way. Um, so it really does add up and, ma- and make a big difference. And re-entering that information, as you said, if an error occurs and you have to start over again and go back and get that data corrected, that adds an enormous amount of time. I remember a number of years ago, I did a study for one of the surgery centers I was working with, and that they found that the registration person, uh, on average, had to, and 50% of the time, had to, to change the data that they had preoperatively for a patient that came in there. That's an awful lot of uh, misinformation that came in. If we can get that information much more accurately up front, where we have a better chance of improving mm-hmm. our operations and, and making sure we don't build something inappropriately. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the downstream effect of having the wrong data in the application, in any of your applications, is it really does impact the overall revenue cycle. And even, you know, can prevent HIPAA breaches in scenarios where, you know, you have an incorrect address or some other data point that's that's out of date and you reach out to the wrong patient or reach out to a patient about the wrong, wrong type of follow-up. So lots of other reasons in addition to maximizing staff time that it really is important to be sure that you have it, have it correct, of course. 
So, Lindsay, the other thing that strikes me when we think about uh, using technology to improve our our systems and move away from more paper, isn't this going to end up being a little bit more secure? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think sometimes when people are used to paper, you know, the change management around that is hard. Like, it's it's hard to let go of paper in some yeah, cases. They like that track, and, that, that paper yeah, trail. Exactly, yeah. But really, moving away from paper is, is really important from a security standpoint, as you know. As you know. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I really, you know, when I look at, when I visit centers or, you know, I'm in a, in a, in a doctor's office myself, um, I'm really astounded that fax machines are still around. <laughs> and, <laughs> We're still handing out fax numbers. <laughs> I don't think I've looked at my fax yeah, exactly. machine for years. <laughs> exactly. Right. So, you know, providers still have fax machines. They're still doing a lot in paper through various means of exchanging it. Still very telephonic, heavy. Mm-hmm. So really an integration makes sure that the data is only traveling securely from point A to point B. And it's a predictable, you know, it's exactly the data that you are expecting to get mm-hmm. in the scenarios where you're expecting to get it. So, you know, it really ensures that getting data from point A to point B is done through a completely secure tunnel right. and that both parties know exactly what to expect from that communication. So what type of data will be going through, um, what types of, you know, validation checks are going to be in place for making sure that data is reconciled properly, et cetera. So it really does ensure that we're removing a lot of the risks that that providers currently have by having paper laying around the office, having people have phone calls in front of potentially other patients or other staff members, and really just make sure that the data only exists where it really needs to exist and only among the individuals who should be viewing it. So, Lindsay, that, that kind of brings up a regulatory side to this. You know, is there a compliance issue also with regard to uh, this topic? Yes, definitely. So, integration can definitely help your facility achieve compliance in areas that are especially emerging. So, as an example, with the No Surprises Act, as you know, it's very critical that surgery centers have the correct contact information for all of their patients, and they need to have that right right off the bat. Um, since they're providing the statements in advance of the case taking place. So, again, otherwise this could end up being a very, very uh, labor intensive process. It looks like interoperability here is probably, uh, you know, one of the ways that we, no surprise, it seems to be like an almost impossible task to deal with, (laughs) which bring, I mean, really is is why we're talking about this today. (laughs) If we want to, you know, that, that, that's a prime example of that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, making sure, you know, you know that your referring providers already have all of the contact information needed. So Mm -hmm. making sure that your surgery center has that on day one, as soon as they know about the case is really is is amazing. Um, And will allow you to move forward with sharing the patient estimate efficiently as soon as you have it. The other thing that I think will be really interesting to see is, you know, if we anticipate that ASCs are going to be treated as the convening provider, it will be interesting to see how we can leverage integrations to Mm -hmm. aggregate the different services that are being provided by by other providers um, adjacent to the surgery center. So, you know, whether that is physical therapy or um, additional lab work or, you know, visits by the provider in their office, as you know, you know, it's a huge amount to compile. Yeah. And CMS has put some time estimates to what they what they anticipate that being. And of course, some of that is also allocated toward generating the the patient estimate um, and communicating that, et cetera. But a large part of it is definitely, you know, pulling together all of that data and preparing that consolidated statement. Yeah, and I don't think we have much so, choice. I think the ASC is just going to be naturally that convenient <laughs> provider. It almost has to be, just like a hospital will be yeah. with a hospital event. Yep, I agree. So, it seems to me like interoperability is definitely critical to an ASC, uh, given where we're heading, that it is becoming the alternative uh, care setting, you know, for so many cases. We're se- seeing cases moving from the hospital to the surgery center in even greater quantities, especially after COVID. So th- that seems to be yeah. another push that that is out there for us to, to move in this direction. Definitely. 
mean, a couple other examples of how it plays out from a regulatory standpoint um, is that certain states are pushing forward with um, HIE requirements for surgery centers. So most of these programs were originally rolled out for other provider types or in other care settings, um, and their requirements for ASCs were, were deferred temporarily. And in some cases, they were then further deferred during COVID just to, to not push forward with another, another burden for providers during a time when they were already so you know, taxed with a million other issues. So now that we're getting back to kind of a new normal, these are starting to go into place in certain states. And they do really have a great benefit from a public health standpoint and in terms of sharing data between, um, between healthcare entities. But ASCs in these states are going to need to submit their data to, to the HIE. So, yeah, um, l- 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 let me just pause for a, a second there. Because what you're just sure. for our listeners, uh, uh, the HIE is referring to health information exchange in states yeah. like uh, New York, where uh, that, that is one of those states that's requiring that, uh, is one of the leaders uh, in, in that movement. So, uh, just, uh, just a thought. Uh, we all love using those initials, don't we, Lindsay? <laughs> I'm not sure everybody <laughs> knew do, what they we were, do. but, but we're yeah, big, HIE, we're health information exchange. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. We love That's our acronyms. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there there are a lot of acronyms further built into the HIE. So, yeah. in addition to you know HIE, we have Health Information Exchange, and then the the type of communication that is generally shared is known as a CCDA. So, it's a continuity of care document, um, and usually that is basically just a summary of the patient's care, and it contains information such as their allergies and their known mm-hmm. problems. And so for surgery centers, it would also include information on things like what procedures were performed. Um, it may include an operative note and so on. So it is a standard format, but each state has nuances um, in terms of what they require and don't require in terms of data that's included in that, in that transmission. So um, the other component with it, too, that's interesting is there's also a patient consent so in some instances, that needs to be captured um, by the provider. And so the provider determines and the provider system would need to determine if that should be sent to the HIE. In other states, like in Connecticut, as an example, patients actually go into a website themselves and opt in or opt out. And then that applies across the board for all of their, all of their mm. care, regardless of care setting. So there are kind of some some interesting differences that are starting to emerge there. And of course, those all play into the rules for how integrations need to be able to be flexible in abiding abiding by those. Um, I guess the last example that's kind of timely is just, as a lot of listeners are probably aware, um, CMS recently issued the proposed, proposed rule, and there is a request for comment on interoperability for ASCs in that. So basically, that means that ASCs would need to have an electronic health record in order to um, participate in in that level of interoperability, most likely. So, you know, of course, we all know how these things go. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, Hopefully, it'll be many years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Hopefully, I'll be retired by but then, it, Lindsay. <laughs> <laughs> we hope not. We hope not. <laughs> um, but but I'm sure you hope you will be. Yeah. So, um <laughs> but you know, it was just it was interesting to see that and them include that there and and just start to yeah. put feelers out to surgery centers in terms of the level of readiness. So um it will be interesting to see how that plays out over time. Okay, let's get to the fun stuff though. <laughs> let's talk about some <laughs> uh, some real examples though of of how this um can actually play out in the surgery center. How how, how are we going to pr- uh, help our poor overworked, underpaid and uh, understaffed uh, ambulatory surgery administrators and nurse managers deal with things on a daily basis? What types of interoperability is out there right now and and we can go into and why, why don't you just kind of talk why don't we just go through like I, as a surveyor I always like go you know the the sequence, you know, follow the patient right through. So yeah. why don't we just start by talking perhaps uh, like what happens before the case is even scheduled or before, I'm sorry, before the case is actually performed. Sure. So I can go on and on in this area. So yeah. be forewarned. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked a little bit already about inbound demographics, but that's definitely one of the most common use mm-hmm. cases. Um, you know, patients are originating from some other place always for a surgery center. So uh, for for many of our clients that that use case makes a lot of sense. And, you know, there are different flavors of that that can, that can be implemented. So 
It can be anything ranging from the referring provider's office um, sends and then continues to be the system of truth for patient demographics, in which case, you know, changes made there would continue to update your ASC software. Um, Other times, centers really just want to receive the patient one time, and then they want to take it from there. So they want to know that as they change the patients, what they address or um, insurance information, et cetera, they want to be sure that that is not going to be overwritten by the the system that originally sent it. So there are all sorts of options um, in that regard for how that, that part of the workflow can work. But really, it it is a giant time saver. And mm-hmm. You know, again, just freeze up your team to do other things that, you know, provide patient care and focus on other things that are more critical and that are non-negotiable for a human to, to do. The other part that is, you know, pre-procedure is we, we are seeing a lot of interest in um, inbound case requests. So many centers, they do want to maintain control over their, over their schedule, mm-hmm. but they know that this, the referring provider has some details on you know, generally what procedure is going to be per, mm-hmm. be performed um, with of course, which provider. Yeah, which block exactly. And so being able to send over a request instead of, you know, going through the more traditional faxing, phone call, phone tag, et cetera, um, is very valuable. So basically it lets the um, physician's software send a, a case request to your ASC software and then your team is able to review that case request and make any adjustments necessary and then go ahead and book it or deny it. Um, mm-hmm. Or so move it. Either yeah. scenario, but exactly, yeah. And um, and then the other piece that that really nicely kind of moves into is overall case coordination. So yeah. once the case is booked, let's say, um, of course, there are lots of different stakeholders involved in moving the case forward and actually performing the case. So... You can also leverage integrations to make sure that other stakeholders are aware that the case was was scheduled, and they're also aware of any additions to the case or changes to the case over time. So anything from, you know, coordination with the surgeons, anesthesiologists, you know, maybe implant, you know, vendors, implant suppliers, et cetera. So being able to to message those different stakeholders on a real-time basis and keep them current with the real-time status of the case as it moves towards surgery or during surgery are all great advantages and all areas where integration and interoperability can can really play a big role. Yeah, and 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 for our audience, think about that. I mean, you know, uh, you know some of you might have multiple schedulers, um, you know, or those schedulers have other duties here. If they can focus on instead of entering that data right from scratch, having all that data there, and they can that their energy then can be uh, focused on uh, making sure that the schedule is efficient, that everything is uh, uh, available, uh, and it also reduces the number of errors that you're going to have in data entry and the information that w- was gathered from the physician's office and brought over to the surgery center there. As you mentioned uh, in the very beginning there, uh, anytime that you're transferring data from one system to another one, there's, an, there's a possibility of error. So uh, knowing how challenged we all Definitely. are in, in, uh, in timing and how often we rely upon these, um, you know, these uh, administrative type uh, people to do this data. And those are hard, just as hard to get a hold of now as, uh, as nurses. This could be a, a huge impact on our, our operations. Yeah, Definitely. Um, the other, another step prior to the case is just receiving the patient's history. So, yeah. you know, any kind of pre-op assessment, um, of course, often that leverages clinical resources, which are incredibly valuable to, to centers. So being able to collect that information oftentimes through a portal um, or collect it electronically right out of the gate is great. Most systems now do have a portal component. So, mm-hmm. You know, you may, you know, behind the scenes, interoperability is in some cases being leveraged to move that into your, um, into the electronic health record. But we do have instances where a surgery center leverages a different portal, maybe as part of a larger health system. Um, as an example, if they have a hospital affiliation or something of that nature, um, they may leverage a different portal. And in that, in that case, you know, being able to get the patient's history in terms of medications, allergies, conditions um, that the patient is self-reporting 
does have a, a very considerable um, and well-established return on investment um, associated with that. Yeah, well, it reduces the risk of uh, cancellation on the day of surgery. That anesthesiologist and uh, pre-op nurses get that information way ahead of the uh, uh, of the, the scheduled date. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, and and kind of alongside that, you know, being able to have the medication information right up front, um, proactively check for any um, contraindications, and just confirming all of that with the patient in advance of the of the procedure is super helpful. The ability to send reminders to patients mm-hmm. in in advance over you know texting is great, and make sure that again to your point, a patient hasn't had a large breakfast before they came in. Yeah. They discontinued their their medications appropriately, um, and they know exactly what's expected from their side and what they need to do to ensure that the that the procedure is successful. Yeah, and it seems to me too. I, I like one one major function in many surgery centers is that preoperative phone call the day before surgery to tell them, you know, to remind them of some of these things and to uh, and to tell them the time of surgery. Those are all functions that don't necessarily need to be done by a human being. Um, and I, un- unless there's a question that needs to be asked, you know, the, uh, uh, between the patient and the uh, the sur- the, um, the surgery center, uh, a lot of that can be you mm-hmm. know handled through this type of automated system. Or even just reinforced, you know, yeah. if, if some facilities may want to be sure that they've directly reached the patient or whoever will be responsible for bringing the patient in. But, you know, getting a text at midnight or something that effect can make sure that when you look at your phone in the morning, you remember to not take your medication that morning. Um, you know, so many of us just do that when we're on, on autopilot for yeah. coffee or hopefully not that morning, but um, right. can can make sure that nothing inadvertently happens um, that the patient has forgotten about or that their, that their caregiver has forgotten about. Also seems to me that the, this could also help us out with uh, getting paid, right? Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, well in advance of the, of the case, making sure that you have real-time eligibility checking, um, that you've, you've done that upon, you know, scheduling the case and then, and then often right before the case again, to make sure that the insurance is still, is still valid, um, being able to get, information related to, you know, prior authorization. Um, all of those are, of course, you know, really, really critical to the overall revenue cycle and just making sure that, you know, insurance is still valid the day that the patient comes in and um, that you are going to get, that you are going to get paid for the procedure. So um, all of that, you know, traditionally had been done through various portals or by phone um, and really, you should be able to go into your software and just click a button and see immediately what the patient's eligibility status is. So really a big time saver there. Yeah. And again, reducing the possibility of having to cancel the case uh, closer to the surgery or uh, finding at the last mm-hmm. minute or, or after the patient's already been done that they uh, that you're not going to get paid for it or you're going to have to go through other hoops that need to be uh, taken care of. But moving Absolutely. Moving on to the actual case. Uh, is there anything that uh, we can do with current technology interoperatively? Um, yes, so absolutely. So when the patient arrives and they're going through um, pre-op, making sure that, you know, hopefully all of the information that you've collected is now already in, in your application, um, as we earlier discussed, but going through medication reconciliation um, mm-hmm. and reaching out to, you know, shore scripts as an example, make sure that the patient didn't forget to include something maybe that they have been prescribed as part of what they, what they, the information that they provided you with. So that piece is, is definitely critical for once the patient arrives. Um, during the case, a really nice feature that integration can, can facilitate is integrating vitals monitors. Yeah. So instead of having to, you know, look at paper and be looking at the monitor and having somebody distracted with capturing all of that, it can instead just feed directly into your electronic health record and into your system and just bring your attention to any anomalies or anything like that. But um, really being able to ensure that somebody is not having to look at paper and mark that up during the course of the procedure is is huge and, and really important for patient safety. Integrations can also help to facilitate receipt of images that might be needed for the case and bringing those up or sending images back mm-hmm. so to to another provider. Um, yeah, for example, the primary course, care know, physician, right? Yes, absolutely. 
Um, and then, you know, being able to communicate with family members during the course of the case, giving them a heads up when um, when patients are are coming out of the OR. During COVID, we saw a lot of facilities, as you know, um, where family members weren't able to sit in the waiting room. So yeah. being able to stay in touch with them and let them know, you know, what time they needed to to be ready to come back into the facility was a was a huge help. Uh, I, I do want to say to our listeners, too, I, I know that uh, we're talking over each other just so that, that our listeners know we are, we're having some technical problems with uh, with this today, uh, and uh, there seems to be a slight delay, so I do apologize to everybody about uh, – uh, we're not doing this on purpose. Um, it is definitely a technical <laughs> – one, one of those areas where uh, we probably should get some better interoperability with uh, – <laughs> <laughs> with our communication. <laughs> Maybe we're demonstrating a, a bad example of this. So Exactly. <laughs> and it doesn't it doesn't end Lindsay at the uh, during the case, right? I mean, after the case it seems like uh you know, in in many ways this is, you know, the last contact you have with the patient, last opportunity to impress them. Yep. So it's uh, just as important as before and in some ways even more important. Absolutely. Yeah. So as they, you know, as they head home, um being able to provide discharge instructions as an example, you know, you may provide those to them um, in a hard copy when they're leaving, but being able to send those electronically um, either to the patient and or to a caregiver or a family member um, is great just so that if you lose that piece of paper, the patient or their or their caregiver can easily access that, that online. A very popular use case is um, sending data out to transcription yeah. companies or software um, and then also, you know, receiving receiving the transcription back into the chart, or also, you know, for centers who complete the op note just directly within their EHR, being able to send the op note um, back to the surgeon's office or to any other providers really does automate a process that has many many steps if you go through it manually and so, prone to error. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. In terms of, you know, sending it to the wrong destination, you know, getting any of those data data points wrong. Uh, you know, a big issue also in uh, surgery centers, and uh, this this technology has been around a while, but we're not always using it, is uh, pathology. We're, we're finding a lot of, as a surveyor, we mm -hmm. find a lot of places getting cited for not uh, having an acknowledgement that the patient had been informed about the pathology reports. And uh, again, this is a yeah. great example, isn't it? Definitely, definitely. Um you know, as well as just getting getting those results back into the patient's chart. So yeah. kind of multiple different scenarios there where pathology um, integration is is a big help. Okay. And I hate to keep getting back to money, uh, Lindsay, but, uh, you know, the, the, after the case is done, we, we have a lot more to do, don't we? Absolutely. Yep. So um, being able to, of course, claim submission um, can can most listeners are aware that that can that can be automated. Um, mm -hmm. But also the ability to check your claim status from within your software um, is very important and, and, a, and a helpful tool to ensure you know where that payment is mm -hmm. in, the, in the flow. And ultimately being able to accept the payment mm -hmm. electronically and have that post back into your application, huge, huge time saving associated with that part of the workflow. And then, you know, all along the way between claims and, and payments, we have, you know, statements going out and reminders of statements. Yeah. <laughs> so all of those can also be, can be fully automated. When I think back on everything we've talked about here, it, it, there's just so many different, it's not like there is one big item sitting there. It's like a whole bunch mm -hmm. of different functions that, uh, that the average administrator, director of nursing, is going to be challenged to find, and I, I think uh, you know we we uh, we're so busy dealing with the day to day crises which uh, pop up. We're so busy with just making sure the patients are taken care of. Often we don't have time to plan to to go through and look at every part of that operation. I think uh, it just seems to me like this is something that you know an administrator and a nurse manager should sit down and you know maybe break it into to chunks. Uh, over a, mm -hmm. you know a couple week period where they just look at every aspect of that operation of their operation and try to see which areas are are ripe for 
um, you know, moving toward a more auto automated option. Uh, and I, it strikes me too, I think one of the great things about your doing this uh, with us today, Lindsay, is is giving, you know, throw, it's almost like a brainstorming session, throwing a bunch of ideas out there and saying, hey, listen, this is av available in the marketplace. You know, you might be able to find mm -hmm. a provider that can do this for you or, you know, um, a, a total solution like, uh, for example, our, our sponsor SIS, you know, provides. Just making sure that you are always aware of uh, what's available to you either, you know, within existing software that you already have or, or software that you might consider in the future. Yes, definitely. So, I mean, as you, you know, as we discussed, there are, there are really are a huge number of points during the patient journey where, and, and the case flow for the facility, um, where integration comes into play. And really for your staff members, all of this, they shouldn't have to think about any of these things yeah. once the integration is in place, you know, they should be able to search for an item that they're going to use on the case and know that it is retrieving the current price for that mm -hmm. item, for example, or, you know, the current number of quantity on hand that you have for a given item. So all of these things should be, once they're in place, should be natural in the course of your staff's workflow. But it really does add a huge value um, to your surgery center and can really, you know, end-to-end -end really expedite um, the overall revenue cycle for each of your cases, which, again, like we talked about earlier, when you multiply that across all of the cases that you handle in the course of a month or a year is really huge. So, as you said, John, I mean, I think that as centers sit down and they think through, you know, what are the areas where humans are doing a lot of work that really don't have to be done by a human. Yeah. You know, if the if the data exists somewhere else, um, you should be able to get it into your system without a person having to retype or recapture or upload or download the the data to and from various other applications. And really like we talked about earlier, that makes sure that all of the data is exchanged securely, it's accurate, and you're not wasting any stuff staff time and your staff can spend time with patients and making sure that they're ensuring the best possible um, patient experience and, you know, also experience for, for the surgeons and the rest of your team. So letting them focus on the things that really matter. So Lindsay, I've always felt, and I think you, you and I've talked a little bit offline on this, that we're kind of late to the game in the ASC industry, aren't we? I mean, many other industries or many other yeah. parts of the healthcare system have already done what we're talking about. It's almost like if we were talking to a hospital about this, they would say, what are you talking about? Didn't you already do this? Or even some sophisticated physician's practices. Are we late to the game? Yes. <laughs> I mean, yes. So yeah. <laughs> um, um, hospital systems and physicians, you know, practices did need to adopt at least some basic integration and interoperability as part of meaningful use. So since surgery centers were not included in meaningful use specifically and, yeah. and still are not thus far, um, those same requirements have not been enforced on, on surgery centers. And, you know, it really is part and parcel of the lack of a requirement for EHRs mm -hmm. in general. Um, I definitely do think, though, that, you know, when you look at where ASCs are situated between physicians and their practices and sometimes a hospital, which may have an affiliation with a, surger with a surgery center or surgery centers, we really do. We sit in between them in many instances. So because all of those surrounding systems have meaningful use certification and therefore have integration and are already doing this as part of daily life, um, really, it does mean that your surgery center software does need to be able to communicate with those other systems to ensure that all of the patient data can, you know, flow efficiently. Everybody has what they need. They have it quickly. In many cases where a surgery center has an affiliation with uh, maybe a large healthcare organization, in some cases that healthcare organization wants them to actually use their software and in some cases, you know, it's really overkill for what the ASC wants yeah. or, or needs. Um, also has a very different price tag. So instead, being able to use software that is designed for surgery center while also just communicating with the surrounding applications offers a really good um, kind of middle ground 
mm-hmm. so that your staff has the software that they want to use and they're they have it's kind of the, the Goldilocks scenario of it being the just right size software, um, but can still meet the requests and or in some cases the requirements of other stakeholders that your center works with by being able to efficiently share data with those other parties. So you know, yes, I, I definitely think surgery centers are late compared to, you know, some of the adjacent care settings. But the good news is, you know, overall in our in our space, um, there, you know, there are a lot of new choices for mm-hmm. software providers. Um, is all of those have integration as core components um, and as a core part of their value proposition. So I do think that we'll see um, a pretty dramatic increase in the use of integrations by surgery centers in in many of the different areas that we just that we just discussed. So how do we start? You know, so for the the again, that poor overworked administrator or nurse manager, what's the next step that after they listen? So they're probably <laughs> on their way to work right now uh, as they're listening to us. What should they do as soon as they get there other than of course put out all the fires that just, you know, started flaring up? <laughs> Sure. So, I mean, definitely just reach out to your software provider and find out what workflows are provided, um, what workflows are supported, what you need to do to learn more about those. You know, they should be able to, even if you're not really sure which one to tackle first, mm-hmm. um, your your software provider very likely has a team of people who can talk you through some of the options and help you and your staff determine where you might have Kind of the biggest thing for the buck um, in getting things going, and you know you can always just expand from there. So right. um, you know, prioritize a list of workflows where where you stand to gain the most, and you can tackle them with your software provider over time. And look for that low hanging um, fruit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, and. You know, one observation that I've had over time working with all the software vendors is that so frequently the users, especially with uh, organizations that have a lot of turnover, like uh, you as the administrator, you as the nurse manager out there, you might not have been part of the original training for that software. So uh, you might not be familiar with it, might have not even come from the ASC Mm -hmm. sector to be aware of what that software can do. And, you know, it's, let's face it, Lindsay, not all the time do, uh, you know, when a new administrator comes in, you don't send somebody out there to train that uh, new administrator how to use it. Um, you know, we, we, uh, I, I always emphasize the importance of on a regular basis, re-communicating with your vendor to find out, you know, what options are there that you're not using that you may be put off into the future. And then but that future never occurred because somebody else is in the, uh, is in the office that, uh, that wasn't there when the software was originally installed. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a really great point. I mean, and, and also just to be clear too, you know, we, we've talked a lot about some of the newer products that are available in the market. Um, pretty much all of the older products also have many of the capabilities that we talked about. So, mm-hmm. and sometimes people, like you said, just don't think to ask, you know, they're, they're, they're busy doing their normal daily routines and, um, you know, covering so much ground, surgery center, especially administrators, clinical directors, they do a million different things over the course of a day. Yeah. So this naturally is not, you know, the first thing that they're thinking of, but you know, again, if you talk to your your software provider, they'll help you to understand what options are available, regardless of which application you use, and can really help to help to provide some direction and where you might gain some immediate benefit. Lindsay, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I, hopefully, our audience has uh, learned an awful lot. I'm, I think you've just given a big checklist of things to do. Uh, certainly, a lot to tackle in the, the short period of time that we've had to talk. But uh, thank you so much. We'll uh, we'll provide your contact information if anybody wants to uh, send you an email or give you a call. I'm sure you'd be available to them. Correct. Great. Yes. Thanks so much, John. Definitely feel free to do that. And um, thank you so much for having me. No problem. In this segment, we provide an update on upcoming topics for the podcast, our upcoming virtual conferences, and upcoming speaking engagements for John and his staff, and other events in the ASC industry. So as we mentioned earlier, CAS's annual conference and exhibits is September 7th through the 9th at the Hyatt Regency Indian Wells Resort and SMA in Indian Wells, California. And I'll be doing a four-hour finance boot camp there. I think you can still sign up, so go to 
casurgery.org for more information. And September 15th through 16th is the ASC Finance Accounting and Reimbursement Seminar that will be held virtually with John and Christina Benton of Coding Compliance Management. And for more information, visit ASCPodcast.com. And then OR Excellence Conference is September 29th through October 1st, 2022 in Orlando, Florida. And Gyra will be speaking and Deronda Vaught will be sharing her work on creating a culture of safety. The ASC Director of Nursing Boot Camp for Nursing Leaders in the Ambulatory Surgery Setting. Like all of our industry-leading boot camps, the Director of Nursing Boot Camp includes reading materials, virtual mentoring consultations, and an intensive four-day virtual conference to be presented October 25th through the 28th, 2022. And again, for more information, ASCPodcast.com. And Ask a 2023's Winter Seminar is January 12th through the 14th at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas, Nevada, and I'll be presenting there. I don't remember yet, Sue, what I'm presenting. I think it's another <laughs> finance um, seminar, so mm -hmm. uh, definitely go to the uh, ASCAssociation.org website. And don't forget about our recorded events also, all available on ASCPodcast.com, which includes our credentialing conference, uh, the Fall 2021 Finance and Accounting Conference, Conditions for Coverage Conference, the Medical Director Conference, and the different self-paced versions of our Administrators Boot Camp and Director of Nursing Boot Camp. And we do want to remind everyone to become a patron member of the podcast. The Patron Member Program, which is also known as ASC Central, is an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop ASC regulatory accreditation, compliance, operations, and financial management resource for busy administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. Resources include some of our virtual conferences, links, policies and procedures, forms, drills, discounts on services, and books and access to AEU credits. Membership helps defray the cost of producing the podcast, including research staff, travel costs to conferences, equipment costs, and production costs. For more information, you can visit ASCPodcast.com. Well, that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Galey. And please spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Galey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Calritis, Amy Durbano, Lori Rodericks, and Ann Geyer. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah. And the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, SIS. SIS's mission is to deliver solutions and services that help surgery providers, regardless of care setting, improve their organization so they can deliver the highest level of care to their patients. For more information, go to sisfirst.com. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com. <laughs>